Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to, or in this case, the interviewing. Today's episode will be about the podcast Mother Country Radicals, a family history of the weather underground, which was produced by Crooked Media. We will be joined by the host of this podcast, Zaid Ayers Dorn, as well as one of the subjects of this podcast, Jamal Joseph. These are two very cool guests that we're very excited to have. And Jorge, you want to tell the, tell the nice folks a little bit about these people if they don't already know, which they should? Of course. Uh, Zaid Dorn uh, was born underground and raised in New York City. His plays have been produced off-Broadway, across the country, and internationally, including in Brazil, Germany, Panama, Sweden, and China. The awards he's received include the Horton Foot New American Play Prize, the Edgerton Foundation New Play Award, the Kennedy Center's John Kennedy Smith Award, the Sky Cooper American Playwriting Prize, Theater Master's Visionary Playwright Award, and Lincoln Center's Le Comte de Nuit Prize. Zayda has developed TV pilots for HBO and Showtime and is currently writing feature screenplays for Netflix and Film Nation. He attended Columbia University, received his MFA from NYU, and was a two-year Lila Atchison Wallace Fellow at Juilliard. He is a professor and director of the MFA in writing for screen and stage at Northwestern. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. And we're also joined by Jamal Joseph, who is a writer, director, and professor, a professional practice at Columbia University School of the Arts in the film department. Jamal Joseph was also a member of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. He credits his time spent in the Black Panther Party and nine years in state and federal prisons as the fire that forged his creative sword. Professor Joseph is the author of Tupac Shakur Legacy, a book published by Simon & Schuster. He has also written a script for a Broadway musical based on the life of Tupac Shakur. He is also adapting his memoir, Panther Baby, a book published by Algonquin Books, into a feature screenplay that he will direct. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Great to be here. Thank you. So, yeah, let's get into it. We both listened to this podcast with great interest, even though it was put out by the same network as the Pod Johns at Pod Save America. Um, we we don't care because we're so interested in this. Um, so let's start with the politics of the Black Panther Party and the Weathermen. Um, what inspired these committed revolutionaries to join in the struggle in the particular ways that they did? Well, Jamal can speak to that better than I can, yeah. Yeah, um, it, both both organizations, both movements uh, <clears throat> stood on the shoulders of, of the civil rights movement. Um, and it was people coming together around a strong moral belief that racism was wrong and that oppression was wrong and that our brothers and sisters from the white community and from other communities saw their fight intertwined, you know, the fight of, of, of human rights, you know, the, the, the idea and the belief that in the history of oppression and at that time, most recently in, in Nazi Germany, that if they, that if they come for you in the morning, they'll come for me in the evening. So our fight is the same fight. Uh, Younger revolutionaries, radicals, began reading about revolutionary struggles around the world and realized that it wasn't just racism. 
um, and that racism was a byproduct of capitalism. And so we began to understand and teach about that in our respective organizations, the Panthers, students from a democratic society, that this was indeed a class struggle, that racism wasn't just, you know, white people hating black people or people of color, but that it was born out of the slave trade and uh, the desire to profit. Um, and that war was the same, that the, that the police occupying our country were no different than the United States military that were occupying Vietnam and, and, and oppressed nations around the world. So that became an analysis to, uh, to get people to join the movement, to understand that it was a bigger fight, that if we really wanted to change things, that it had to be more about voting rights and it had to be more about desegregating lunch counters and, and water fountains that the system had to be changed and replaced by what? Uh, uh, replaced by a system that put people first, not profit first, not domination first. And this made us natural comrades in a struggle together in organizing and fighting side by side and understanding that the main work needed to happen within our communities, but that we were there together. And that, that's why there are similar things in the ideology of the Black Panther Party and the ideology of SDS, or especially in the weather underground in terms of the critique of what was going on with America and what you had to educate the masses to and what, what you had to fight against. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with all that. I think uh, the only thing I would add is just that for, for my parents and the white activists in SDS and the, and the weather underground, I think you know, they were coming out of an analysis that was mostly class-oriented. You know, in Students for Democratic Society, you had progressive labor, you had people who were, you know, who were advocating a kind of uh, class-based analysis of what was going on. And, and I think part of what happened with the Weather Underground was seeing that the struggle in Vietnam, but most especially the struggle here at home, couldn't be understood just with a class analysis, but required the kind of analysis that the Panthers were doing. And, and I think for my parents, a lot of that their initial kind of understanding of of revolutionary ideology came from looking around at you know the North Vietnamese, the Tupamaros in Uruguay, and the Panther Party here at home, and saying you know how can we follow in the footsteps of those revolutionary movements? You know, Zaid, I was talking to a, a Columbia colleague uh, uh, just a little while ago, and I was telling him you know that we were you know about to do this interview, and. Um, Explain to him why the uh, why the podcast why the podcast was called Mother Country Radicals, yeah. and it was a clear analysis that when we were talking about colonialism, it was a mother country, and typically, you know, we thought about imperialist powers like, uh, you know, uh, England and France and uh, you know Spain, but that here we recognize the America as the mother country, and that we in communities of color were living in the colonies. Yeah. And, and so I made my friend laugh. I like literally in the Panther office, when you were going out to organize, you would take some newspapers and you say, I'm going out to sell some newspapers. And you go like, where are you selling the papers? It says, oh, I'm going to be right here in the colony. All the people that were going to go downtown, like to Times Square or by the New York yeah. Public Library would be like, no, I'm going, I'm going to sell my papers in the mother country. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it was a really alive kind of thing for us in the way we, uh, in the belly of the beast, saw what we were doing and how we were fighting together. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and there, you know, we we took the title, of course, from all the things Jamal was talking about, and you know, we had a clip from Fred Hampton talking about, uh, you know, the the alliance that he was trying to create between, you know, the, the what he called the Rainbow Coalition, right? So the Panthers, SDS, all these groups, and he says, you know, we will stand with anybody and form a coalition with anybody who has revolution on their minds, including white mother country radicals, and so that's that's kind of what got my mind thinking about that as a title. And to be clear for our listeners, it was Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party, but in particular Fred Hampton uh, and the people that he was working with. It was the Young Lords, and it was Rising Up Angry, and you know a, a bunch of, of of groups in Chicago that created the phrase Rainbow Coalition. People think it was Jesse Jackson. Remember, Jesse Jackson was watching Fred Hampton and what right. the Panthers were doing. A couple of years older than Fred Hampton, and when like all that works. And especially when he saw that the Rainbow Coalition was making great strides in the labor movement and in local politics, getting people out to, to vote progressively. And he was like, that works. That's a good idea. So I'm going to call it Push Rainbow. It, <laughs> wow. was, it was Jesse Jackson that 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 uh, and his comrades that created uh, uh, the name Rainbow Coalition. Huh. That's super interesting. I guess there's a rainbow coalition for social revolution and there's a different <laughs> one for political revolution. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying about mother country radicals. I think about it often in terms of, uh, like, I, I grew up in this country, uh, but, you know, I'm a person of color, um, Mexican descent, Latino. And I, I think often about what you were just saying, Jamal, in a sense of, like people of color, particularly black people, but also uh, different communities of color in this country are many ways of a colonized people in a sense of like, and, and, and it is a, people talk about it more, but it, it, it you know, I, I grew up on the border in Texas and, you know, uh, it was a very interesting experience for myself in, in the sense that uh, the vast majority of people I knew were Latino. But then I moved to New York. I went to school. I went to school upstate at Cornell, and I, it was the first time I was around white people, really. And I was like the first time I really felt like othered. It felt really strange to me because of the fact that, oh, I felt like I grew up in the same country. But you know, in reality, this country is really something different, uh, that, especially for people like you and myself. And so, uh, what, what I what I wonder, you know, and in, in, in the podcast is, you know, done. Which, which I thought was such a great job, uh, but in, in, in terms of explaining how it felt to explaining for someone like yourself to be interested in the Black Panther Party, but I guess what I'm interested in is what would you say, given like you know now it's been you know decades now since since you were since you were in it, like what would you say? Why was the Black Panther Party so different? Like it, it very clearly is looking back as like a revolutionary formation. It was like a there was like a break in terms of past social movements and past uh, social organizations. Why, why do you think it was so different and why, why, why managed to become so powerful? So there were a lot of energies and ideas that came together at once in the Black Panther Party. Uh, the real kind of genius of Bobby Steele and Huey Newton was they knew how to put theory into practice. You know, they studied, of course, Marx and Lenin and Mao and Ho Chi Minh and Che Guevara. They knew how to take these ideas, Malcolm X, of course, uh, and they knew how to take these ideas and says, well, how do we organize people around these ideas? 
Um, and they were one always, you know, during the day on the street, organizing people around their needs. And at night, political education meeting to see what revolutionary theory applied to to black people and to to people of color, you know, to our brothers and sisters who were brown, who were red, who were yellow, uh, disenfranchised communities, you know, the gay community, as we said at the time, for the broad, uh, you know, for the broad uh, coalitions that we had with queer folk. All of this was different. And to have that socialist analysis of why all of these things were happening. And they were taking some things that had happened uh, at the end of Malcolm X's life and Martin Luther King's life and standing on those shoulders. So when I say standing on the shoulders, it's not just the civil rights movement marching has got us, but so far, and we're going to do this. But it was also ideologically where Dr. King and Malcolm were at the same time. Dr. King gave a speech almost exactly a year before he died at Riverside Church, where he critiqued the three evils of America. And he said, those things are poverty, racism, and militarism. The three evils of America, which we realize are the three tenets of fascism. And that's what he began to spoke about. And he was vilified and isolated within the movement, within the civil rights movement. Martin, stay in your lane. Let's talk about voters' rights. Let's talk about desegregation. Why are you denouncing the war in Vietnam? Why are you talking about a poor people's campaign and that the civil rights movement and the struggle for jobs and for justice and for economic justice are the same? Malcolm the same. We think of when we read the autobiography of Malcolm X, when we watch Spike Lee's great film and documentaries, we think that the real progression for him was leaving the Nation of Islam, making Hajj, uh, the holy pilgrimage to Mecca, and the statement that I no longer believe that the white man is the devil because I prayed with Muslims who are white, who are Asian, um, uh, who are African from all walks of life. Malcolm gives a speech. Malcolm begins to talk about, the, about class struggle. He gives this great talk at Oxford University a few months before he died, where he was talking about Pan-Africanism, but also about class struggle. It, it's no coincidence they were killed at the same time that they were killed because the fascist state realizes, oh, if you're just talking about organizing within your community and how bad it is, and incrementally we may give you the right to drink water from a certain fountain and a limited right to vote, that's one thing. But when you start talking about this thing called class struggle and you start talking about the majority of the people are oppressed by the system mm -hmm. and overthrowing the system, now you've hit the Achilles heel and you have to go. So I, I know we'll come back to that a little bit later when we talk about uh, the FBI and counter, counterintelligence program. But the Panthers, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Fred Hampton, Elders Cleaver, the great minds of the Black Panther Party understood these things, but they understood how to break these complex ideas down into things that people could understand. The Panthers 10-point program. They talked about land, bread, housing, education, justice, and peace. Capitalism is mentioned by name. We want freedom, we want the power to control the destiny of our community. Two, we want an end to the robbery of the capitalists of our Black communities. 
but then you're able to kind of go out into the community and demonstrate that. And then you're able to back that up with programs. Uh, we're in a food desert, people are not eating, our children are starving, uh, they're going hungry. And then we expect that when they go to school in the morning, that uh, uh, our kindergartners and our first graders uh, uh, need to sit still when the math teacher is telling them two apples plus three apples equal five apples and their stomachs are growling. What did the Panthers do with that analysis? They created the free breakfast program for children and they made it a community program in the sense that community folk were always involved in that, collecting the food from stores that, that, that would contribute to the program persuading community centers and churches that the parents of these children belong to, that the Panthers just come in here to serve breakfast, not to overthrow the church, and to serve these kids, and to use that to teach. Now, we have this program. We call these programs Survival Pending Revolution. Why do we have to feed ourselves in a country that seems to be able to put men on the moon but can't put health, two or three healthy meals in front of a child? in our black, brown, and red and yellow communities. So it was that action. And the other thing you have to mention is the Panthers was the swagger of the Black Panther Party. It took what was cool during that day. It took those leather coats. They took the berets. They took that language. I mean, if you listen to Fred Hampton speak and Bobby, Spiels, uh, uh, Bobby Seale speak and uh, H. Rat Brown, they will fly in the way that they broke it down. They they poked fun at America. They dissed America. They labeled the cops as pigs. They talked about the fascists. People like Richard Nixon had names like Tricky Dick. You know, uh, Eldridge Cleaver ch challenged Ronald Reagan, punk Ronald Reagan, who was the American hero, to a duel. He said he's a fascist. I challenged him to a duel. He could pick <laughs> his weapons. Uh, it could be guns and eyes. If he chooses a marshmallow, I'll beat that punk together with the marshmallow. So... <laughs> That's what we call talking smack in the black community. And we respected that. We respected people that would talk that smack and then to be able to, to back it up. So across all levels, the Panthers were able to organize from the street folks to, to the young people who were in college, students who were, uh, 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 you know, who, who were questioning the system anyway, and blend that together in a movement that made it feel accessible or relevant and also pretty damn cool all at the same time. So it was like a, that, that revolutionary lightning bolt that hit the black community, that came from the black community and hit America straight on. And you could be part of it. You had to be a black person to join the Black Panther Party. But if you wanted to be a comrade, if you wanted to work in your community, come by the Panther office, take political education classes, volunteer some of the programs, and take those lessons back to your community to really organize this rainbow revolution. Yeah, word. They're, they were so cool. <laughs> I mean, they still are. Just like an avatar of every, like just the best Americans you could possibly picture in your mind. It's aspirational, really. Yeah. Um, how, you know, Zayed, how, how, what, what would you say, and you mentioned this in the, in the podcast, and this, is, this occurred, but what would you say then? How... What were your parents' conception of the Black Panthers during that time? Yeah, well, you know, Jamal mentioned that that idea of comradeship, and this is something he and I have talked a lot about. You know, we talk so much today about being allies and how white people can put, you know, be allies to the 
struggle for black liberation. And I do, I do think my parents and their friends saw themselves in some way as trying to, you know, I mean, depending on whether people loved or hated them, they were called mother country radicals. They were called fifth columnists. They were called, you know, they, they were opening up a new, a new front, right. In, 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 right here in inside America, in a country at war, but that, that, that was in effect at war with its own people here at home. I think they wanted to figure out a way that white people could follow the example of the Panthers. And obviously, you know, that's a complicated struggle. We, we see today how complicated it is for white people to try to be good allies to the black movement. But, you know, one thing Jamal and I started talking about during our interviews was this idea, you know, what's the difference between an ally and a comrade? You know, what, what does it mean to be better than an ally, to be not just saying, you know, yeah, I'm with you in spirit or like I, I want to be on your side, but to say I'm going to fight alongside you. You know, I'm going to be shoulder to shoulder with you and I'm going to put my life on the line, my security on the line, my freedom on the line, because your liberation is my liberation. And I think one of the things I, I think that was very clear, especially to my mom early on, is that, you know, it's not just that white people, white people in America can't be giving out freedom like it's charity. They can't be saying, you know, we need, we, we, yeah, we think you should also be free. The fact is white people can't be free in America unless black people are free in America. So it's, it's a, it's a mutual struggle. It's something people are engaged in together. So I think for my parents, you know, they had an economic analysis. They were reading Marx. They were thinking about, you know, about Marxism, about communism, trying to imagine a revolution. But it was really the unification of that with the analysis from folks like Fred Hampton, who were saying, you know, yes, a class struggle, but a class struggle that has to be based on, you know, a, a multiracial coalition that is that is engaged in that kind of fight together as comrades. So I think, yeah, for them, their self-conception was how can we be better comrades? And I think they looked to the Panthers and ultimately to the Black Liberation Army, to people like Jamal Joseph to say, you know, how can we how can we follow what you are you all are doing? And, you know, the, they did see the Panthers as the vanguard of the revolution. And they wanted to see how um, how white people could be in, in, in solidarity and comradeship with that struggle. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on this podcast as well. Um, I think we've done a lot on the George Floyd uprising of 2020 and um, thinking through the ways that it was sort of uh, initiated by black proletarians, right? But joined very quickly by proletarians of all races for, you know, overlapping reasons. And I think that that is really important when you are trying to build a revolutionary mass movement. Um, Yeah, but um, let's talk about tactics. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion on the podcast about which tactics were used um, as what was effective as well as what could have been done differently. Maybe um, I know Jamal, you say on the podcast that you would definitely do it all over again, but there are maybe some things that you would do differently the next time around. So can you share some of uh, what you think, which tactics uh, you think were effective used by the weathermen and the black Panther party uh, what maybe you would have done differently and, you know, what lessons, what legacy, uh, modern revolutionaries can take from all of that. Absolutely. Just a couple of sentences though, in what we were talking about, a couple of thoughts, um, the way we engaged our brothers and sisters from different communities was, was exactly what Zaid was saying, right? Is to make people understand that 
it, it wasn't just a good deed uh, to help people from the black community, that your freedom and your humanity was tied up in that. That, that, that and so in, in uh, there's this great thing on YouTube, if you, if you Google uh, everyone, Bob Lee, who was a tremendous organizer. And it's this famous thing of Bob Lee in the white community. And when you first look at it, you think, oh, the Panthers have gone to Appalachia or some, you know, someplace in the South to talk to, to these uh, shit-kicking white people with the Confederate flag in the background. Literally, a Confederate flag was on the front of the house that they went into. But that was in West Chicago. They were talking to working-class white folks. And you see Bob Lee engaging those brothers and sisters. He, what I called them, brothers and sisters, not potential allies, around stuff that was happening in their community. And there's this great thing where this this white woman speaks about how the police beat down her brother and their hatred for the police. And there's a young white kid that's talking about getting a Molotov cocktail because he hates the cop. And Bob Lee famously talks him down from that as a tactic. And this is going to be my segue into tactics as uh, I forget the young man's name, but he says, we don't want to see you get killed. We want to see you fight for freedom. And this is tactically kind of not the thing to do. And we can learn from that. We can learn from engagement. We can learn from organizing people around it not just being a good deed, but part of their survival and part of their their their, their humanity in their own communities around those issues because uh, American capitalism and fascism is a gift that keeps on giving. So in one place, it might be police brutality. In the other place, it may be rat infestation and poverty. In another place, it may be a food crisis. I'm talking about all communities now, right? There are more white people on welfare and public assistance right. in this country in, at this very moment than black folks or brown folks. That's how you organize. And that's how you organizers who come from these communities come together and come back to those communities, right? And that's how you, that's how you do anti-fascist organizing. Because fascism will always say that it's them against us and we will be extinct if we don't hold the line. We are the superior race. And go throughout history mm -hmm. and different places of fa fascism, it's wherever it was, right? It was, you know, uh, uh, you know it was Italy, uh, you know, under Mussolini. It was Hitler learning from Mussolini's playbook, not the other way around. It was it, it was uh, Japanese imperialism under Hirohito and the people that did that. So that that's how we organized. So tactically, um, we always saw what we did as a, as an above ground movement that would become an underground movement. And the idea was to get people to a revolutionary mm. consciousness. And I love to share it's one of the greatest lessons that I learned from a Fanny Shakur and the Black Panther Party when we were doing housing organizing, health organizing, sickle cell anemia, uh, uh, you know, police brutality. Uh, she said, you know, the goal of the Black Panther Party, Jamal, uh, is not to have every man, woman, and child become a member of the Black Panther Party. The goal of the Black Panther Party is to teach people the possibility of struggle through example. And if we do our jobs, you won't need a Black Panther Party because the whole community will have revolutionary consciousness. And there'll be a new structure. 
there'll be something that evolves kind of beyond that. Um, the armed propaganda that we called it was first manifested in the Black Panther Party in those states that were legal, most famously Oakland, California, when the Panthers patrolled the police with legal weapons. Uh, it's before California changed the 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 gun the gun laws, uh, and the Panthers would shadow the cops. The cops would pull someone over. Panthers would be there and stand the legal distance away with shotguns and rifles and law books. They would read from the law books. They would read the person their rights. And they would also let the cops know that they had a right to observe and the right to defend themselves. No one had stood up in such a precise and organized way against police brutality. This caught the imagination of the black community throughout. And there started to be police patrols throughout. In those states where you could not carry the guns, Panthers were out with cameras, even in those days, photographing the police. And what was very important is because we were doing this other organizing, when they'd be that kind of stop and the Panthers confronting them, other people in the community would come out and say, what are you doing? Why are you mm -hmm. harassing that young man or that young woman? Why are you talking about those Panthers? You know, they're from our community. Uh, so that was the level when you talk about the, the, the armed propaganda in the Black Panther Party and that, that call to use the constitutional right to defend yourselves, to bear arms to defend yourselves, because it was uh, uh, clear then as it's clear now that the police were not there to protect our communities, that they were, they were there to protect the capitalist state. And we had grassroots example of that. And we would say that's why when your grandmother calls and says there's someone outside of my window trying to get into my house, the cops come an hour late, if at all. But if a storekeeper who owns a store on 125th Street, uh, you know, in Harlem, says there's a shady looking black dude across the street looking like he's thinking about robbing the store, the cops are there before. Uh, before he can hang up the phone, because that's who they're there to protect. So you use that again to teach and to kind of organize people. So those were the tactics within the Black Panther Party. And the self-defense, the shootouts between the police and the Panthers would be that the cops would come with, gun, with guns blazing. Uh, uh, you know, uh, no, no more brutally exemplified than in the murder of Fred Hampton. Uh, you know, our shining star in terms of brilliance and oratory and organization and how he was murdered. Uh, and even black cops at that time began to denounce what the Chicago Police Department was doing. That began to fall apart. But then that's when the, the Panthers. Uh, um, and then a few days after that, there was the Panther attack uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, both of these happened in December of 19 of 1969. And that was the famous standoff that happened between the Panthers uh, uh, and the police. And by the way, that was SWAT. That was SWAT's first mission. Uh, SWAT stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. SWAT's first mission in America, really? or in LA, where, first was, uh, where, where uh, SWAT was for, first organized, was against the Black Panther Party. And the Panthers managed to hold them off. The Panthers called before they cut the phone wires called the press. We always like press around. We always like filmmakers and journalists around. 
we had nothing to hide. We wanted people to come see what was really going on, the real narrative of liberation. And if you look at those videos of that shootout, hundreds of people from the community were there observing that shootout. So the more that that went on, the more difficult it came for it to become a mass murder and for the Panthers to resist. And so that was another phase of, of, uh, of armed propaganda is to demonstrate uh, self-defense in action and what that meant and to build that into a consciousness. But always connected to the broader ideology of the 10-point program that we're fighting for all of these things uh, uh, at the same time. With the Black Liberation Army, it changed because the armed propaganda of the Black Liberation Army was twofold. It was to liberate comrades who were uh, 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 who were uh, in the belly of the beast, uh, who had been thrown into, as we call them, concentration camps into prison. And it was also to push back against police brutality uh, you know, uh, if, if someone was murdered by, uh, by doing a counter-strike. Uh, and this is uh, obviously more daring, more dangerous, and more controversial than the call for self-defense. But at that time, things had escalated in America to the point where the, where the country had become so openly vicious and murderous uh, that the soldiers of the Black Liberation Army, the men and women of the Black Liberation Army, felt that those statements had to be made so that people realized that they would be, again, we always call this a political consequence. Part of the ideology of the Black Panther Party was that there are uh, three forms of power. Uh, there's land power, economic power, and military power. Uh, and that we're oppressed because we've been, as a colonized people, all of these things taken from us. The promise of 40 acres and two mule for every family that was enslaved would have allowed Black people not only to free themselves, but to own a majority of farmland and to send someone into the political arena, i.e. the Senate or the Congress, to make a demand for rights, human rights. We always talk about human rights, not civil rights. And to say that if you do not deal with this, then we'll inflict a political consequence. What's the political consequence if you have land power? It is to say we will stop uh, selling our crops or doing our crops, and you will go hungry. You understand the pain that we feel. Economic consequence would be if there's any industry that a particular people can control that you can stop producing. That was taken, and so we understood early on that the political consequence that we did have available to us if we arm ourselves, was a military consequence. And so again, building on the ideology of the Black Panther Party, that military consequence became those things when atrocities had been committed in the Black community. When a Black woman like Eleanor Bumpus, a grandmother, is killed when people come to serve an eviction notice and she tries to close the door and she's blasted by a shotgun. When a young man named Clifford Glover is killed because he had what the cops said was a weapon, and it turned out to be a Mars bar, a candy bar. And it's those kinds of things that made the Black Liberation Army said that out of what our ability to inflict a political consequence, and again, uh, uh, you know, the definition of politics, again, in Black Panther ideology taken from, from the Red Book, Miles C. Tung's Red Book, was that politics is war without bloodshed, uh, the ability to achieve political goals 
and wars politics uh, with bloodshed. Uh, and so that's kind of a general overview of what of what we did tactically, but why we did it tactically and how that was connected to the overall ideology of the Black Panther Party. Yeah. I mean, I always learn a lot when, when Jamal talks. I, I'll just underline one quick thing, which is, you know, you, you're asking about tactics. And I think one of the things Jamal's pointing out is, you know, when, when the mainstream media asks me or asks Jamal, asks members of the Weather Underground Black Liberation Army about tactics, they're often asking about, you know, violence. Why turn to violence? And is that an effective tactic? And I think one of the things Jamal's pointing out is historically that that turn to violence and militarism comes at the end of a long process, right? The tactics that the Panther Party and SDS and, and the civil rights movement before them were employing were, you know, voter organization drives and the, the free lunch program and and freedom schools. And, you know, there were tactics that, that involved a broad swath of, of organizing, uh, you know, principles and organizing tactics. And in each case, they were met with violence by the state, by white supremacist vigilantes. So you have, you know, the murder, uh, I mean, Jamal already mentioned some of them, but, you know, all the way back to Medgar Evers and Goodman Schwerner and Cheney and Martin Luther King Jr. And these people are all being murdered by white vigilantes. And then you get somebody like Fred Hampton who's saying, you know, no, we're going to stand up in our own self-defense. And then the state power comes down on him and murders him, police murder. And so eventually some of these groups decided, you know, we have to, as, as Jamal said, propaganda of the deed, armed propaganda, show people a different way to resist. And I think for all these groups, a lot of the idea of building a, an underground network and, and kind of developing the capacity for that sort of armed resistance and revolution came as a response to deadly state violence and the fact that that people could not feel safe in organizing and in, in, in kind of peaceful, nonviolent organizing, that there had to be a way of of you know disappearing and of resisting state violence with violence. Absolutely, you know, a, a, an example of this is uh, they they raided the breakfast programs, they raided the free health clinics, they raided tenant organizations in the same way that they raid Panther offices uh, would wreck and destroy what was there. So imagine coming back and Panthers and community folks to uh, a breakfast program site or to a Panther office, and not only seeing all of the food that had been collected, you know, the eggs, the cereal, the pancake mix, not only destroyed, but the cops had urinated on the food for the breakfast program. Just to show you that hatred, Jagger Hoover, who uh, called the Black Panther Party before, the, before, the Cong before Congress, the greatest threat to the internal security of America, hated the free breakfast program more than the guns. The guns were like, okay, but it's the breakfast program that he hated because he knew this was winning the hearts and minds of the people and that other communities were doing the same thing, including poor white communities were doing the same thing. So to, uh, you know, to, 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 uh, to underscore Jade's point about the Zay's point about it came at the end of, of, uh, of many attacks and much frustration that, that, that both the white, that both the black and the white underground felt that ideologically, right? And, and the reason I, I think I want to keep saying, people are portrayed as just kind of drug-fueled, wide-eyed, young, crazy revolutionaries that just go like, let's just go blow some shit up right now. This, this would be people waging struggle, uh, 
days, months of debate about tactically what do we do now? As things are disintegrating around us, as things are getting worse, as our comrades from all communities are getting murdered, what do we do next? And so it was ideological and it was armed propaganda in a thought out way. Now, we can look back and I'm sure we'll get to that. Would it be the same if we, if we, uh, knew then what we knew now? Well, that's true for everybody as you get older. You know, it's, it, it's true for, you know, elder revolutionaries as well as for other people. But given the prism and the energy of the times, this is what we thought would be most effective to begin to keep the struggle alive and to at least by example, beat back the forces of oppression. And the other case that I make for this is that um, they did begin to think twice about all of the shit that they were doing in poor communities and to revolutionaries organizations. They did begin to think twice about it. And so I think that lives were saved. And again, open for a healthy debate as to tactically would it be the same, but in that moment, in that moment of revolutionary warfare, um, ideologically, it seemed like that phase needed to be moved into for all of us, that phase of armed propaganda. Word. We are not a uh, canonically anti-violence podcast, so, uh, you know, we support diversity of tactics and, you know, doing whatever the moment calls for. Uh, yeah, I think regarding that, uh, how did how would how was this agreement navigated in the Black Panther Party? Like, how how do you feel the party leadership dealt with conflict within the organization? And kind of you mentioned just now regarding say J Edgar Hoover, like what role do you believe that state repression played in breaking the Black A Panther huge Party role. apart? And in that sense, even though we. Uh, called a fascist a fascist and a pig a pig and brutality brutality. Um, we had no idea just how vicious the state would get um, in the form of the FBI's counterintelligence program and the uh, clandestine coordinated effort of counterintelligence that was a creation of the FBI but reined in, uh, you know, the CIA and uh, other secret police organizations. For example, uh, in New York City, there was a secret elite police unit called the Boss Unit that stood, stood for the Bureau of Special Services. And it was exactly like the units you see in uh, movies like Scorsese's movie, uh, The Departed, uh, where, uh, where people were recruited even while they were in the academy and disappeared uh, into these special units uh, where they were trained and where they were sent to infiltrate organizations uh, like the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, the Weather Underground, but in particular, the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. And their jobs uh, were not just to observe and gather information, but to do counterintelligence. Um, so the Panther 21 case, uh, which was, uh, you know, Frank Hogan, who was the, uh, uh, Manhattan's district attorney and, uh, uh, probably the second most powerful man in New York City, beyond the mayor, the way Jager Hoover was 
probably the second most powerful person in, in the country next to the president uh, because of the way that he ran his secret police force, uh, decided that, uh, I know in other cities they're raiding Panthers and they're shootouts, but I'm going to use the legal system. I have an all-powerful legal system. And there were two people who, uh, and, and so the, and so we found ourselves uh, on April 2nd, 1969, uh, doors were simultaneously kicked in all around the five boroughs and everyone in a leadership position, uh, including youth leaders, myself included, I was a section leader in charge of the high school cadres, were arrested and charged in a bomb conspiracy that we were training uh, to uh, launch guerrilla warfare in New York City a few weeks out from the Easter shopping season. And that would involve bombing department stores, police stations, having snipers across the street from uh, from the cops, uh, you know, from the, from the police stations. And these were crazy charges to us. And then we found out about the existence of the, uh, you know, as we uh, got closer to trial and uh, discovery motions were filed by our attorneys, that the two, that the main witnesses were these undercover police officers. Uh, uh, I'll tell a story about my section leader, who was like my sergeant, my lieutenant, uh, who trained me, uh, a guy named Yewa, very charismatic guy, a military veteran, a tenant organizer. He was one of those Panthers that was at the forefront. If the cops were beating someone down, he'd, he'd be the one there ready to punch the cop in the mouth. If we were talking about organizing a building where there were slumlords and no heat, no hot water and rats running, He'd be like, let's get the landlord and drag him back to the building and have a people's tribunal and lynch his ass from a lamppost and put a rat in his mouth. Let, let there be people's justice. And the Young Panthers would be like, yes, let's do that. And cooler heads like a Fanny Shakur would be like, that's great. We do that. And what happens to the people in that building? When my grandmother found Panther, Panther material stashed underneath my bed, this woman who was the, who had been the, who was the daughter of slaves and knew lynching and clan brutality firsthand, got freaked out and said, you can never go back to this place. Um, uh, you know, these are the people I see on TV getting killed. I, it was okay when you were in the civil rights movement at the church in the NAACP, but this must stop. Yewa came and convinced her to let me come back, said that he would keep an eye on me, make sure that I was safe. And even if I didn't come back, make sure that I was Going to school and my grades were good. My grandmother said, you know, there's no man in his life. He doesn't know his father. His grandfather passed away. So when we found out who the two undercover people in the Bureau of Special Services were, one was a security lieutenant who had been Malcolm X's bodyguard. He was on security the day that Malcolm was killed. In fact, there are photos that you can Google where Gene Robinson is giving Malcolm X mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Um, uh, Yuri Kuchiyama, the great, great Asian uh, revolutionary, was holding Malcolm's head, and Gene Robbins was giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Malcolm X drew his last breath from an undercover cop who was part of that elite police unit. But with those credentials, having been just feet away when Malcolm got shot, he joined the Black Panther Party. He was part of that unit. 
And the other one of the other people that was part of that unit was my mentor, was my section leader, the person who trained me, the person who convinced my grandmother to let me come back. He was part of the boss unit. So in that case, not only did they gather uh, what they said was intelligence against the Black Panther Party, they did stuff like planted dynamite in the Panther offices, went on gun runs uh, to the South to help buy guns. And so that's how counterintelligence works. Counterintelligence also works by creating, planning rumors and lies and fear within organizations. And this is what happened in the Black Panther Party where uh, uh, and caused a divide in national leadership. And so what happens with counterintelligence is that organizations are being attacked from without, the paranoia of those attacks, the paranoia of knowing that's informers, paranoia, again, think of fascist states where people are now scared labeling each other as informants. Letters are showing up. People are making calls in the middle of the night saying that, hey, I know you just all had a great podcast, but guess what, Jamal, after it was over, Zaid was saying that you were an informer. Guess what, Zaid? Jamal is saying that, you know, you want all the glory yourself. Or, hey, guess what? You know, uh, people uh, in your circle are talking about killing you now, even though it's you work true. together. It's not true, man. All, it's not true, right? But all of those are what, are what counterintelligence looks like. And it resulted. But the other thing that uh, that I learned from talking to people who were police officers at that time is that a lot of the shootouts that happened between the Black Panther Party and uh, the uh, local police were engineered by the FBI. Most notably, Fred Hampton, those floor plans to Fred Hampton's apartment were given to the Chicago police by the FBI as a result of undercover people who were in the Black Panther Party. There were FBI informants that gave them that. In other areas, it was also said you have to attack now, in Fred Hampton's case, attack Fred Hampton now before he disappears, and especially before he, he unites the gangs in Chicago into a revolutionary force. In other places, it would be like attack the Panthers now before they attack you. We have evidence of a weapons buildup. To the Panthers, it was like the police are about to attack. You need to arm a little bit more. All of those elements, and I could go on and on about the real life and death things that the FBI's counterintelligence and the whole covert, subversive, all those agencies working together uh, led to the death and imprisonment of Panthers, young lords, Iwakun in New York City, you know, white revolutionary activists. That's what the, the secret war of counterintelligence looked like and felt like that further fueled us to say, we're underground, what can we do? What does mass organizing look like? But also what does armed propaganda look like in the face of this devastating war that we are experiencing? How would you say the state repression was regarding the weather underground? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think nobody faced uh, that kind of state repression uh, of, the, of the scale or the, or the viciousness that the Panthers did. But I mean, it, there was a similar sense of, I think, like the Panthers, when the Weather Underground finally found out, you know, through declassified files and stuff, what the FBI had actually been up to, they were shocked at how far the government had been willing to go, how many of their own laws and rules they'd been willing to break to try to bring down these revolutionary organizations. So, 
like Jamal, I could I could go on with a lot of stories. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, when my mom was underground, she was, you know, on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And the FBI was very eager to capture her. Um, and her sister, my aunt Jennifer, was the kind of above ground spokeswoman for the weather underground. But she was a civilian. She was not accused of any crime. She had not broken any laws. She was just, you know, the above ground political spokesperson. Turned out the FBI had made a plan when she gave birth to my cousin Emilcar to kidnap her baby and hold him for ransom to force my mom to turn herself in. So this was a government organization saying, you know, we will kidnap a newborn baby from a from a hospital, from a maternity ward in order to blackmail this fugitive um, to, you know, to turn herself in. So, yeah, the the, the repression was was intense and ongoing. Um I would say, though, I'll just add one other thing from the point of view of what I've understood about the Weather Underground is the internal divisions, Jorge, that you asked about at the beginning. Certainly a lot of it was provoked by the state. Uh, There were, you know, we now know there were, uh, you know, informants within the group. There were people trying very desperately to infiltrate themselves into the group on behalf of the FBI. But it's also true that the Weather Underground had internal divisions that were organic, that were self-inflicted. And I think it's worth uh, contemporary activists taking seriously the fact that that kind of factionalism is dangerous to a revolutionary movement. So, you know, in the case of the Weather Underground, it eventually fell apart over issues of kind of, you know, infighting and attacking, uh, you know, one one faction against another saying, you know, you're not adequately revolutionary, even though you've been underground for 12 years, or you're not adequately radical, or you're focusing on the wrong things. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, internal self-criticism within an organization is healthy and helpful, but when it gets to the point where you're doing the work of the government for them, it can, you know, really, it can bring down movements. And so I think the Weather Underground ultimately fell apart, both due to outside pressure and the kind of internal pressures that that movement building is sometimes subject to. Yeah, I, I would agree with that with the, with the Black Panther Party as well. There were some organic things and some differences that had to do with uh, people's personalities, some factions that were developing anyway, and counter counterintelligence uh, uh, program and CIA operatives were very good about fueling those fires. Yeah, but there's something to be learned about, uh, and, and and it was an ongoing principle of ours of criticism and constructive self criticism. But we have to remember why we come to these struggles and. Uh, and it's love. And, 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 I, and I think that progressive folks and revolutionary folks should remind themselves of that and not be afraid to, to say that. Yeah. Uh, and if you ask anyone who was, uh, uh, who's a Panther veteran, uh, and that's how we refer to ourselves, not as former Panthers, but as, but as former veterans. Um, what's the thing you were taught to believe above all other things? And again, political education class almost every night uh, you know, everything, as I said, from, you know, from, you know, from, from Marx to, to Malcolm. Um, but a 10-point program, 26 rules of discipline. But if you ask that question, I guarantee everyone will answer the question uh, similarly. And it would be that we were taught to have an undying love for the people. And to serve the people, mind, body, and soul. Um, if we remind ourselves of that, and if we also remind ourselves that we're not perfect, um, but that we've been human enough and good enough 
to think that it's worth fighting for something beyond ourselves. That a lot of what goes on today, and I, you know, I, 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 you know, I've seen this. You know, my uh, Jad and I, my son Jad, have had this this conversation about what criticism looks like and what cancel culture looks like within the movement, and what it looks like when factions come and people all of a sudden say that you're not revolutionary enough or not progressive enough. Where does that engagement come if we can't figure that out among ourselves when we go to communities? And you're talking about organizing, but but you have to have this ideology even, uh, you know, even to join and even to be a revolutionary. You know, people come out for George Floyd March or for something else and want to be engaged. And there's so much ideological conflict. They're going like, this is the same stuff that I'm experiencing every place else that I'm going. You know, I came out here because I believed in something I wanted to fight and I thought I could learn more about that because that experience felt so good. That rally felt so good. That volunteering feels so good. But now that I'm getting to know y'all better, you are fighting all the time when you have the time and place to really fight the enemy. And more importantly, where's, where's the outreach to the community so that that community that we save for fighting can, can be part of it and become organizers themselves?